recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. Today is, I don't know what day today is. I've been on the road so long. T- today is Friday, July 6th, 2012, and I'm at the home of my good friend, Don Spears. Tomorrow night, Don will join me in, in a program. I don't know all of what we're going to discuss. I have pictures of it, but I'm I'm not sure of everything he wants to discuss. But if I'm sure of one thing. It will be an interesting program. Tonight, I'm going to present the, um, the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 7. I've been in, um, I just spent two weeks in Panama City at the home of my good friend, John Wade Moore and his lovely wife, Lisa. And that was quite an enjoyable time. I I didn't get to um, evangelize like I would like to do sometimes, but uh, we did a little, but not as much as... um, It it would be more interesting if I could do more sometimes. There was a... um, In in Alabama, there, there was a Christian identity pastor's meeting or something like that in Winfield, Alabama. And it was yesterday, Wednesday, yesterday, and today, I believe. And and, um, interestingly, Yahoo had posted news of it, but I didn't get any news of it until um, late last night. Yahoo posted news of it at the last minute, after 4 p.m. last night, the, the Yahoo News account was dated. That's typical. That they want to deride Christian identity every chance they get, but they don't want to give anybody the opportunity to see what it's really about. That's why they um, that their websites usually point to um, certain people and not to others. That's why the certain people show up on the ADL lists and others don't. And that's my theory anyway, that they really don't want to steer anybody in the direction of true Christian identity. They only like to deride it because they really can't debate with it. Okay, tonight it's, um, I would have liked to have gone to the Winfield event in Alabama, but it's a four and a half hour ride and I only had, um, I only had a few hours notice. There was no way I could have gone. If I'd have known about it earlier, I would have loved to have shown up maybe Wednesday and, and Thursday. Uh, of course, my Friday program, I consider, um, my, my own core work, and, and I wouldn't miss it, so I couldn't go to Winfield today. Now for the third time, tonight is Luke chapter 7. Last week, we talked about the purpose of the Sabbath in Luke chapter 6. This is something that practically every Bible commentator either misses or skims over in the words of the prophets, and, and I too have been guilty of doing so myself. The Sabbath is a very touchy and emotional issue for um, many people, especially in Christian identity. And, and um, the idea that we're supposed to hearken back and, and cling back to that Levitical Sabbath is not really the right idea, and I presented that last week, and I will present it again tonight. The words of Yahweh our God in Hosea concerning the ancient Israelites who are about to be deported into captivity by the Assyrians 
and concerning the Sabbath, here is Hosea chapter 2, verse 11, where Yahweh said through the prophet, I will also cause all of her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. Likewise, the Septuagint at Hosea 2.11 says, and I'm repeating the Septuagint, so that we have a second witness to this text, because it is important, and I will take away all her gladness, her feasts, and her festivals at the new moon, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn assemblies, speaking again of the children of Israel. So we see that these things, as they were known to the Israelites of the ancient kingdom, are removed by the word of God. Now, as it was stated here last week, it should be clear as to why Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, and I will quote verses 16 and 17, Therefore no one must judge you in food and in drink, or in respect of feast, or new month, or new moon, or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of future things, whereas the body, meaning the children of God in the world, is of the anointed. Paul also said in Romans chapter 14, and I'm going to read a lengthy passage, starting with verse 1. Now he who is weak in the faith, you should not receive for the arguing of decisions. While one trusts to eat all things, yet another, being weak, eats vegetables. He who eats must not despise him that eats not, and he who eats not must not judge him that eats. Indeed, Yahweh has taken him to himself. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he shall stand. Indeed, the Lord is able to establish him. Now, I must interject that an examination of 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 reveal that Paul is talking about the eating of profane foods, such as things sacrificed to idols. He's not talking about unclean non-foods. Romans 14.5. While one distinguish, and this is important to what we say here about the Sabbath from Hosea 2.11 and, Hose- and Colossians 2.16. While one distinguishes a day contrary to another day, yet another distinguishes every day. Each in his own mind must be fully assured. He who is observing the day observes it with authority. He who eats, eats with authority, for he gives thanks to Yahweh. And he who does not eat with authority eats not, and he gives thanks to Yahweh. Not one of us lives to himself, and not one dies to himself. Therefore, if either we were to live in the prince, we live, or if we were to die in the prince, we die, or in the Lord. So if we were to live, or if we were to die, we are the princes, meaning Christ. If indeed we are Israel, we were bought with a price, and we belong to Christ. For this reason, Christ died and lived, that he may be master of both the living and the dead. 
Now, why do you judge your brother? Or then, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Yahweh. Indeed, it is written, I live, says the prince, or the Lord, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. And indeed, every knee shall bow, if not here in this life, then certainly at that day of judgment, which Paul's next statement in Romans fourteen twelve verifies. And I will read that. So then each of us shall give to Yahweh an account concerning himself. Now no longer should we judge one another, but rather determine this. Do not put an obstacle in the way of a brother or a trap. Now, Paul tells us not to judge one another, but those outside, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Yahweh shall judge, and therefore we are to separate ourselves from unrepentant sinners, which is Paul's instruction in that chapter. We will discuss that further later. So while the children of Israel were no longer bound to the Levitical Sabbath, they were, however, promised a reward for keeping a somewhat different sort of Sabbath, which we see outlined in Isaiah chapter 58. And I will read from verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of Yahweh, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure. In other words, we are rewarded when we do not seek our own pleasure on the Sabbath, but seek the pleasure, the will of our God. Nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in Yahweh. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob, thy father. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Christ healed on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees called it work, arguing that it was a violation of the letter of the Mosaic law. But the Levitical Sabbath was eclipsed, as we saw in Hosea. And Christ was instead following the Isaiah chapter 58 Sabbath and seeking to do the will of God on the Sabbath day, which is an example that all Israel should follow today. Christ used his Sabbaths helping his kinsmen healing the sick feeding the poor, and we should follow that example to use our Sabbath days seeking to help our kinsmen just as he also did. Furthermore, helping our kinsmen is more than merely spreading the word of God. Each member of the body has diverse gifts, and it is those gifts which we should recognize and seek to employ in our community meaning among our kinsmen and our wider racial community. With that, we will get to Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When he had completed all of his sayings for the ears of the people, 
He, meaning Christ, went into Capernaum. The reference to all of these sayings is a reference to the Sermon on the Mount, as it is called, and the parables which Christ uttered as they were recorded by Luke in chapter 6 of his Gospel. Verse 2. And upon a certain centurion's having a sickly servant who was about to die, who was dear to him, and having heard about Yahshua, he sent to him elders of the Judeans, asking him that he may preserve his servant. And they, coming near to Yahshua, exhorted him earnestly, saying, That worthy is he for whom you may grant this. For he, meaning the centurion, of course, loves our nation, and he has built the assembly hall for us. Let me say that ancient Roman centurions employed their men in public works of public building, like roads and walls and, and other items. And here we see it was done of an assembly hall when those men weren't actually fighting. That's what Romans did. They built things. That's what Roman soldiers did. They were employed in construction. They were like the Army Corps of Engineers, right? They were employed in construction projects when they were not fighting. And that's how they earned their keep when there was no warfare going on. That's how Rome built its famous road system. So Yahshua sent... I'm sorry. So Yahshua went with them, and already he being not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Prince, you must not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Wherefore, neither am I myself worthy to come to you, but speak in a word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man appointed by authority, having under myself soldiers. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And hearing these things, Joshua, admiring him and turning to the crowd, following him, said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant healthy. There is a much briefer version of this account given in Matthew chapter 8. Many unlearned commentators attempt to use this verse in order to somehow prove that Christian identity is wrong, and that the Romans or the Greeks could not have been among the dispersed of Israel. In Matthew chapter 8, Immediately after the healing of the centurion's servant and Christ's exclamation concerning the faith of the centurion, we hear these words of Christ recorded, and I quote from Matthew 8:11. I say to you that many shall come from the east and west, and they shall recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outermost darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Romans and many of the tribes of the Greeks of the time of Christ were indeed among those people of the tribes of Israel who were dispersed in ancient times, as many as 15 centuries before the time of Christ. 
however, being divorced from Yahweh their God, put off in punishment for their sins, which is the entire theme of the Old Testament. They were alienated, as Paul later and explicitly told them, and they were not recognized as Israel until their reconciliation to Christ after his sacrifice on their behalf. So here, Christ uses the term Israel to describe only those Israelites in Judea who represented the remnant having kept the law and the prophets. But that does not mean that all of the previously dispersed Israelites were somehow no longer Israel. Isaiah chapter 43 offers proof of this and may also be compared to that passage which has just been cited, which followed this very event where Christ talked about those many who would be coming from the east and the west and reclining in the kingdom in Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. And once we read Isaiah chapter 43, we may understand Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, and this episode with the Roman centurion, because it was Isaiah chapter 43 and those words in Isaiah to which Christ was referring when he quoted that in Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. These references at the beginning of chapter 43 of Isaiah are references to Israel's migrations and the dispersions which occurred many centuries before the time of Christ. Isaiah 43.3, For I am. Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. In other words, the other Adamic, Genesis 10, white Adamic kingdoms were given up to the enemies of God. Today we see that they are no longer white Adamic kingdoms. Isaiah 43, 4, speaking to those children of Israel, since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. Here's the important part. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the ends of the earth. The identity of the sons and daughters was just given in the first five chapters, five verses of this passage, in the first five verses of Isaiah 43. Those being gathered from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. They are the dispersed of Israel and nobody else. Isaiah 43, 7, even everyone that is called by my name, true Christian Israelites, 
For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes. Now we know the identity of the blind, the children of Israel, the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, those nations of Israel, which Paul describes as the recipients of the covenant in Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. And let the people be assembled, who among them can declare this and show us the the former things. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is truth. Isaiah chapter 43 tells us that those people who were to be gathered unto Christ from the ends of the earth are indeed the children of Israel, and none others. And that the other nations were given up by God for the purpose that he would demonstrate his love for Israel. Those Israelites were already dispersed by Isaiah's time, 700 B.C., 740 B.C., were the white nations of the coast of Europe and the Mediterranean, which the Israelites had indeed colonized in ancient times. Even from before the days of David and Solomon, all of which can be demonstrated in classical history in concert with the biblical literature. These are the nations which sprung from Abraham's seed, which Abraham was promised, which Paul describes, where he describes the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Isaiah 43.9 is remarkable, where it says, let all the nations be gathered together. And let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses. That they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is truth. Today, with Christian identity, it is declared that the dispersed of Israel can indeed be identified in their ancient travels, in their ancient settlements. And it is truth, indeed. Luke 7, verse 11. And it came to pass thereafter that he went into a city called Nain, and his students and a great crowd went with him. The city Nain was apparently a small town just a couple of miles southeast of Nazareth. Verse 12. And as he neared the gate of the city, then behold, a dead man being carried out. The best beloved, or the most loved, the son of his mother, and she was a widow, 
and a considerable crowd from the city was with her. Now, a lot of people would refute my translation of that passage because the King James Version says, the only born son of his mother. The Greek word, monogenes, I'm sorry, monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, is a difficult one since it literally means only born. However, the word monogenes was used in many places by Hebrews as an idiom, which means best loved or most beloved. Here, we will establish that. While the idiom is not evident in Luke alone, it is evident from its use by the historian Josephus, and also where Paul used the word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, where Paul speaks of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, and he says, By faith, Abraham, being tried, had offered up Isaac, and the best beloved, the word monogenes, being offered up, took upon himself the promises. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, we see Isaac referenced in the King James Version as Abraham's only son, in spite of the existence of Ishmael, where the King James reads, and I quote, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. The Septuagint translators recognized the Hebrew idiom, and they therefore rendered this same passage thus. In the Greek, and the Greek in, and Brenton's English is a fair rendering of the Greek, where he says, And he said, Take thy son, the beloved one, whom thou hast loved, Isaac, and go into the highland and offer him there for a whole burnt offering on one of the mountains which I tell thee of. So it is evident, by comparing Genesis 22, verse 2 in the King James Version with the Septuagint, where Isaac, rather than being called the only son, and we know that Isaac was not literally the only son, is instead called the beloved one, the beloved son. That the word monogenes, which is the word which is not used in the Genesis 22.2 in the Septuagint, but is used in Hebrews 11.17 by Paul to translate that Hebrew passage. Literally, monogenes may be used to describe a favorite son where it appears at Hebrews 11.17. Because where there were other sons, which certainly existed, and therefore the word cannot be interpreted literally as true. It has to be an idiom. And we see that in the manner in which the Septuagint translators translated Genesis 22, verse 2, they understood the idiom that Isaac wasn't really the only son, literally, but he was the most loved son. 
And for that reason, we see that word monogenes used very often in other places to describe a most loved son. For instance, the word monogenes was also used by Josephus in Antiquities, in Book 1, in Chapter 13, and in Book 20, in Chapter 2. And Josephus's most famous translator, William Whiston, makes notes of the usage of the word monogenes at those points in his translation, showing that the term, now Josephus is, of course, a contemporary of Paul, was certainly used as a metaphor for best loved or most loved, which the Septuagint translators, as we've already seen, clearly understood when they translated the text of Genesis 22-2 into the Greek. I'm going to read Josephus' Antiquities, chapter 1. This is um, line 222 in the Loeb Classical Library numbering, but it's chapter 1. I'm sorry, Book 1, Chapter 13, Line 1 in Whiston's numbering system. From Josephus Antiquities, Book 1. Now Abraham greatly loved Isaac, and being his only begotten, meaning the Greek word there being monogenes, and given to him in his old age by the favor of God, the child also endeared himself to his parents still more by the exercise of every virtue, and adhering to his duty to his parents and being zealous in the worship of God. So Josephus also used that Greek word monogenes to describe Isaac's relationship with Abraham. At this passage in Josephus, there is the following footnote from William Whiston, where he says, note that both here and in Hebrews 11:17, Isaac is called Abraham's only begotten son, that's the literal meaning of that Greek word, monogenes. Though he at the same time had another son, Ishmael. The Septuagint expresses the true meaning by rendering the text, the beloved son, unquote. So Whiston also recognized that the Septuagint translators understood the idiom and where the Hebrew writers writing in Greek used the term monogenes, which means only born, they meant it as an idiom to mean best loved or most loved. Let's read the passage from Josephus' Antiquities, Book 20, Line 20, or Book 20, Chapter 2, Line 1, in the Wiston numbering system. And I quote, He had indeed Monobazus, his older brother, by Helena also, as he had other sons by other wives besides. Yet did he openly place all his affections on this, his only begotten son, Isates. Now here in that passage, it's very clear in the context of the passage that Monobazus, the king of Adiabene, whom Josephus is discussing, had more than one son. Josephus said he had many sons by other wives. In that part of the discussion previous to this passage, Josephus relates that he indeed had many sons. 
Worcester supplies the following footnote at his passage, because Josephus, knowing that this man had a lot of sons, had no problem describing one of the man's sons as the monogenes son, the only begotten son, which we see is an idiom in Hebrew for the most loved son. Here's what Wiston, here's what Wiston says as a footnote, and I quote, Josephus here uses the word monogenes, an only begotten son, for no other than the one best loved, as does both the Old and New Testament. I mean, where there were one or more sons besides. Genesis 22.2 and Hebrews 11.17, end of quote. Now, you might wonder what this matters in Luke. And it really doesn't matter here in Luke whether we consider this son of this woman who died, the son being dead, that Christ is about to raise from the dead, whether we consider this the only begotten son or the most beloved son. Here in Luke, it doesn't really matter. However, it is important to understand this use of the word in other passages of Scripture, especially in places such as John 3.16, where it says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. In the Christogenian New Testament, it says that he gave his most beloved son. Because Joshua Christ is not the only son of God, as many mainstream commentators insist. Rather, all of the children of Israel are the children of Yahweh their God, as Yahweh our God explicitly states in Deuteronomy 14.1. And in Psalm 82, 6, and as Paul even says, says in Acts 17, 28. Therefore, when we see this word monogenes in John 1, 14, in John 3, 16, in John 3, 18, in 1 John 4, 9, where Yahshua is called the monogenes of God, it is evident that the term should be interpreted idiomatically in those places, that Yahshua Christ is the most beloved son, and not the only born. And then all of the seeming conflicts with Scripture evaporate. Luke 7, verse 13. And seeing her, the prince, meaning Christ, was deeply moved by her and said to her, Do not weep. And going forth, he grasped the coffin, and those bearing it stopped. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Then the corpse sat up and began to speak, and he gave him to his mother. And fear seized all, and they honored Yahweh, saying, That a great prophet has risen among us and that Yahweh has visited his people. And this account went out in the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding area concerning him. It is often repeated that Christ was the first person resurrected from the dead, and I've heard this many times, even though scripture itself plainly refutes the claim. Well, here and again, 
the resurrection of Lazarus. We see that other people were resurrected from the dead by Christ before Christ was resurrected. There also must have been times in the old kingdom where men were resurrected from the dead. And yes, that sounds incredible, but we must understand that if we believe that God created us, then he could surely bring us back from, from death. As Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, that women received their dead from resurrection, and Paul is referring to the old kingdom, to the ancient kingdom of Israel. Christ is the firstborn from the dead, as it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. But that does not mean he was the first resurrected from the dead. Resurrection is not to be confused with birth. Rather, Christ is the firstborn because he is Yahweh God incarnate. And then, in his bodily advent, he both died and was resurrected. Luke 7, verse 18. And I'll speak more about resurrection next week in Luke chapter 8. And his students reported to John concerning all of these things. And summoning a certain two of his students, John sent to the prince saying, Are you he who is coming, or do we expect another? Then coming to him, the men said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, Are you he who is coming, or do we expect another? And at that hour, he had healed many from diseases and plagues, and wicked spirits, and many blind were granted to see. John the Baptist has not yet been imprisoned at this point in Luke's Gospel. The account of John's execution by Herod is supplied in Mark chapter 6. This here account of John's inquiry concerning Christ seems to contain only half the story, only one perspective, where, with that which is recorded in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, we may perceive a more complete account of the events transpiring here. And I'm going to read John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30. Then there came a dispute among some of the students of John with the Judeans concerning purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, for whom you testified, and we all remember that testimony concerning the Lamb of God, he immerses, and they all come to him. John replied and said, A man is not able to receive anything if it has not been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear testimony for me that I said that I am not the Christ, but that I am being sent before him. He having the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices in joy because of the voice of the bridegroom. This, therefore, my joy is fulfilled. It is necessary for him to be augmented and for me to be diminished. Under the inspiration of God, John the Baptist himself had testified of Christ at his baptism. And we see that here. His students say, him for whom you testified. 
here, with the dispute among his students recorded in the Gospel of John, we may perceive that John the Baptist may well have sent his students to inquire of Christ for his students' sake in order to resolve the dispute among the students described by John. And not believe for his own sake. Christ, for the sake of the students of John, then demonstrated his abilities to heal and his power over wicked spirits before their very eyes and showed those students that he was indeed he who is coming, where John then testified that he was the bridegroom. Luke seven twenty two. And replying, he said to them, Going, report to John the things which you have seen and you have heard. The blind have their sight restored, and the lame walk about. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are brought good news. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. When Yahshua Christ announced these words, he, in effect, told John and everyone else who heard him that he was indeed the Messiah, since Yahweh God proclaimed that he himself would do these very things. For example, in Isaiah chapters 29 and 35, Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in Yahweh, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. He is Christ. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The same things. Christ was doing, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. John the Baptist understood that when he who is coming actually arrived, that would be the beginning of the fulfillment of Hosea. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where Yahweh says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Therefore, John called him the bridegroom and said that it was him who would have the bride. And the messengers 
of John departing, he began to speak to the crowd concerning John. Why do you go out into the desert? To behold a reed being shaken by the wind? Rather, why do you go out? To see a man clothed in soft garments? Behold, those who are in splendid and luxurious garments are in the palaces. But why do you go out? To a prophet? Yeah, I say to you, and greater than a prophet. This is concerning whom it was written, Behold, I shall send my messenger before your face who shall prepare your way before you. I say to you, no one born of women is greater than John. But he who is least in the kingdom of Yahweh is greater than he. A reed being shaken by the wind is a common sight in the desert, and men with riches are generally not found there at all. Christ proves to the people that John the Baptist is indeed a prophet, at least in a human sense, and simply because they were all going out into the desert to see him. And then Christ agrees that John certainly was a prophet. However, no matter how great a prophet John was, once the kingdom of Yahweh is attained, all those who do attain it shall have even greater capabilities than John had while he was on the earth. Luke seven twenty nine, And all the people heard, and the tax collectors deemed Yahweh just, being immersed in the immersion of John, being baptized in the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of Yahweh in regard to themselves, not being immersed by him. John had come, as the prophet Malachi foretold, to purify the sons of Levi, Malachi 3.3. Although other people received the emergence of John, nevertheless, he fulfilled his intended mission. Yet the Pharisees and the lawyers were not baptized by him, and therefore it is evident that at least many of them were not actually Levites. The accounts of Josephus and Eusebius, while neither is explicit, also reveal that many of the Pharisees, many of the priests, were not Levites, and in fact, many of the priests were not even Israelites. Luke 7.31, the words of Christ addressing those who were not baptized by John, who rejected the counsel of God. So to what do I compare the men of this race, and what are they like? They are like boys sitting in the market and calling to one another things which say, We piped for you, and you did not dance. We sang dirges, funeral songs, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came, not eating wheat bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, behold, the man is a glutton and a wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and wrongdoers. 
for sinners. And wisdom is justified by all of her children. The Codex Sinaiticus reads, and wisdom is justified by all of her works. The text follows the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Beze, and the Codex Washingtonensis, and also the Codex Alexandrinus, and even the majority text, which agree but have a different word order. The Codex Sinaiticus is a manuscript of great authority. The idiom of the language here is a little difficult. I can't really tell if the saying, they are like boys sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another things which say, we piped to you and you did not dance, we sang dirges and you did not weep. I cannot tell if that saying exists as an adage. It seems to be that Christ is quoting something, but not necessarily. The idiom of that language may be a little difficult. However, the intent is clear. The Pharisees saw John calling for repentance. And they saw the disciples of John humbling themselves in that repentance. They were fasting. John dressed himself in camel hair and subsisted upon locusts and wild honey, as we see in Matthew 3, 4. All of these are signs of poverty and humility reflecting a state of mourning. We sang dirges for you, and you did not weep. The Pharisees did not weep along with those who were singing the dirges of repentance. The Pharisees saw the apostles and the followers of Christ eating and drinking in celebration, and neither, as Christ says, we piped for you and you did not dance, Neither did the Pharisees dance along to the sounds of that celebration. For those who were repentant at the beckoning of John, the Pharisees claimed that John had a demon. For those who celebrated the advent of the Messiah, the Pharisees claimed that Christ was a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Either way, the Pharisees found fault in the message of God, and that is what Christ is telling them here. Wisdom is justified by her children. The Pharisees sought worldly wisdom, and because of that, wisdom herself was indicted. Because God operates by his word, which defies worldly wisdom. The anthropomorphism of wisdom is apparent here in the Greek, the article being used with the Greek word Sophia, and then the pronoun her being feminine, there is a definite anthropomorphism here. Wisdom is also personified in Proverbs chapters 8 and 9. And of course, such anthropomorphisms abound in Greek and Roman writing. But the Proverbs are even older than those. The mistake that the Greeks and Romans made was in making graven images and worshiping wisdom personified among with their other idols.
Luke 7, Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees had asked him that he would eat with him. And entering into the house of the Pharisee, he reclined. And behold, there was a woman who was in the city, a wrongdoer or a sinner. And finding out that he reclined in the house of the Pharisee, she acquired a box of ointment. And standing behind by his feet, weeping with tears, she began to wet his feet and wiped them off with the hair of her head. And she kissed and anointed his feet with the ointment. This incident, which happened early in Yahshua's ministry in Nain, where a woman wipes off and anoints the feet of Yahshua, is not to be confused with the later incident, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, and which is also mentioned in John chapter 11, where in Bethany, Mariam, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, had performed a very similar act. This, with this here incident, which happened in Nain, which is a city in Galilee near Nazareth, where the later incident happened in Bethany near Jerusalem, this is definitely a separate event. Here there is a difference in the manuscripts which can probably be explained by purposeful scribal emendations, and I do this for an example of some of the differences in the manuscripts, which occurred in order to adjust for differences in dialect. There are many other examples of such emendations among the manuscripts, where the English has the verb reclined here. The codexes Alexandrinus and Washingtonensis, which are both from the 5th century, have the Greek word anaclino, Strong's number 347. While the Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century has the Greek word katakaimahi, Strong's number 2621. The text of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca has a third verb, cataclino, following the codexes Vaticanus and Beze, which are of the 4th and 5th centuries, respectively. All three words, or any of the three words, may be re rendered recline in this context. For instance, to recline at a meal. We see that word in the Christogenian New Testament because the, the words which are used to describe the act of dining at a meal literally mean to recline since the Greeks usually took their meals upon couches and not upon chairs at a table. The word alabastron is a box here, and it's a certain type of box. It's made of alabaster, a certain gypsum, which is a mineral. And the word for ointment is actually muron, which is often translated as myrrh, or M-Y-R-R-H, myrrh, in the King James Version of the Bible. So it's actually an alabaster box of myrrh where I've translated it simply, a box of ointment. Luke 7, verse 39. And seeing, the Pharisee who invited him spoke to himself, saying, 
If he, meaning Christ, were a prophet, he would know who and of what sort is the woman who touches him, that she is a wrongdoer or a sinner. Verse 40, And replying, Yahshua said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Then teacher, he said, meaning Simon, speak. And Christ says, Two men were indebted to a certain moneylender. The one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Upon their having nothing to repay, he forgave both. Now which of them should love him more? Answering, Simon said, I suspect that to whom he forgave more. And he, meaning Christ, said to him, you have decided correctly. Simon, of course, must have realized with this saying that Christ was indeed a prophet. Christ knew exactly what he was thinking about this woman. Here is something that many Christians do not understand or even refuse to attempt to understand. With the gravity of sin, there is the corresponding abundance of forgiveness. All Israel shall indeed be saved. Because that is the promise which Yahweh our God made to our fathers. The Judaizers of the first century did not understand this. And Paul responded to their accusations in Romans chapter 6, where he says, and I quote Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So while, as Paul argues, we should not sin more simply because there shall be an abundance of forgiveness, nevertheless, there are no exceptions to the promise of God that he shall cleanse all of the sins of the children of Israel. And I quote Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 and 25, where Yahweh says, For I will take you from among the nations, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all of your idols will I cleanse you. There are no exceptions to that promise. This word denarion, and I feel that I should discuss it, I didn't translate it in the Christogenia New Testament. In plural, it is denarii. I, I would not attempt to estimate the value of a denarius today, except that at the very end of the Appendix A in the Loeb Library edition of Caesar's The Gallic Wars, De Bello Gallico, Translated by H.J. Edwards and first published in 1917, the following is found speaking of the pay scale of Caesar's soldiers circa 50 B.C. And I quote, before Caesar's time, the scale of pay was 120 denarii a year, which was estimated to be about four pounds in Britain in 1917. And it says, he increased it 
to 225 denarii, about 7 pounds and 10 shillings. By the time of Christ, it is apparent that the denarius was considered a fair day's wage for a laborer, which we see in the parable of the vineyards in Matthew chapter 20, and where the King James translates the word as penny. The word also appears in Luke chapters 10 and chapter 20, verse 24. I only state that concerning the denarius for the purpose of elucidating the meaning of the word. It's a day's wage for soldiers in Caesar's time. It's probably about 200 American dollars today, right? Luke 7, verse 44. Then turning to the woman with Simon, he said, Look at this woman. I have come into your house. You did not offer water for my feet, but with tears. She wet my feet and wiped them off with her hair. You did not offer me a kiss, but she, from her coming in, has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with olive oil, but she, with ointment, has anointed my feet. For that favor I say to you, her many errors are forgiven because she has loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, loves little. With the gravity of sin... There is the corresponding abundance of forgiveness to the children of Israel. And those who receive that abundant forgiveness shall love Christ all the more for it. We should all think of that before we judge our own brethren, as Christ himself shall indeed forgive them all. All of those who make the fleshly assertion that even the most sinful of our Israelite brethren are destined for the lake of fire, are actually denying the mercy of Yahweh our God as promised in his word in Scripture from the beginning. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 8 through 10. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills shall be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith Yahweh that has mercy on thee talking to the children of Israel. From Romans chapter 4, 14, again, from verse 4. Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yeah, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. He shall be holden up. Paul is making an express statement of all of our Israelite brethren. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, saith Yahweh, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us, meaning every one of the children of Israel, shall give account of himself, to God. This quote is from Isaiah chapter 45, 
verses 21 through 25. And I will read that in order to put it into context. Tell ye and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, or I Yahweh, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, all those children of Israel who were scattered to the north, to the east, to the south, and to the west, which we read about in Isaiah 43, two chapters before this chapter in Isaiah 45. They are still the topic of the conversation. They are the subject of the conversation from Isaiah chapter 41, the dispersed of Israel. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed, in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. All Israel shall indeed be saved. Anyone who wants to throw an Israelite into the lake of fire is no better than this Pharisee. Luke seven forty eight. Then he said to her, Your errors, or your sins, are forgiven. And those dining together began to speak among themselves. Who is this who even forgives sin? Those dining together, literally those reclining together, is another word, suna, sun anakaimahi, a substantive. Yahweh God said in the Old Testament that he would forgive sin. Sin was a violation of God's law, which only God for, could forgive. Christ by forgiving sin, by his words, claims to have the authority of God. Those who opposed him denied that he was the Messiah, and therefore they denied that he was God. By the accompanying wonders, the miracles which he had performed, he proved that he was God incarnate, and they refused to acknowledge as much. Verse 50, Then he said to the woman, your faith has preserved you. Go in peace. By the actions of the woman, she acknowledged that he was indeed her Messiah and her Savior. Her faith preserved her in this life. Her repentance assured that her sins were forgiven in this life, and she would not be judged for them in this life. As we see in Scripture in Amos chapter 9, in Romans chapter 13, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and in 1 Timothy chapter 5, all Israel shall be saved in the resurrection. Many of us will suffer for our sins in this life. Amos chapter 9, verse 10, 
all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In other words, those people who do not believe they could be punished for their sins, who are clearly unrepentant, Amos chapter 9 says that those people shall die by the sword in this life. From Romans chapter 13, verse 4, But if you practice evil, be fearful, for not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of Yahweh is an avenger with wrath to he who has practiced evil. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul is talking about a fornicator. What is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those within you or those among you. But those outside, Yahweh judges, you will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. In other words, as Paul is explaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if we have an unrepentant sinner among us, we are to expel him from our community, and we are to pray that Yahweh judges that person. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are manifest beforehand, going ahead to judgment. That's the sins of a repentant sinner. But others then follow after the accountability that the unrepentant sinner will be held to. And in like manner also are the good works manifest, and those which are otherwise are not able to be concealed. That all Israel is saved in the resurrection, we see again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For another foundation, no one is able to place... Besides that which is established, which is Yahshua Christ. Now if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it, because in fire, and as Peter explains, those fires are the trials of life, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss. If you have no good works in your life, you will suffer loss. But as Paul goes on to say, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. The fire is the trials of this life, which when we immerse ourselves in the blood of Christ and repent of our sins is a judgment that we hope to avoid. And if we do not avoid that judgment, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.15, that he himself, the man himself, shall be preserved, because all Israel will be saved, whether you have good works and a reward, or whether you have no good works and no reward, he himself shall be saved. Only a Jew would ever want to see 
one of our Israelite brethren thrown into the lake of fire, contrary to the word of our God. And that's all I have to say on that topic for tonight. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, I will be here with Don Spears. Next Friday, I will be here, Yahweh willing, from Jacksonville, Florida, with Luke chapter 8. Good night.